And Father, we thank You for the Word that You have given us. We thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank You that in dark days, You not only provide light, but You provide the One who is light, Jesus Christ. Thank You that in dark days we can hold to Him. Thank You in dark days we are held by Him. Would You now renew our hearts, refresh our hearts, strengthen our hearts, compel our hearts, but why, by, what, by what we hear in this word this morning. Change us, our Father. We have come to worship, but in our worship we also long for change into the newness of Christ and the likeness of Christ. Would you do that as we hear this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have been in love or if you are in love, you, you may have questions about your love. You, you have questions about, about what love will do. When, when we are in love or when we think we are in love, we will ask questions like this. Will the person I love return that love to me? Will the person that I love forgive me when I sin against her? Will the person I love be willing to sacrifice for me? Will the person I love meet my needs and longings? We, we want by those questions to know just how extensive is the love and, and what will the love do for us. But we also want to know what love will not do. And so we ask questions like, will the person I love harm me? And will the person I love keep me secure or will he put me in a precarious position? If we ask these kinds of questions about each other, we certainly will also ask those kinds of questions about God and His love. We, we want to know, is God's love safe? Are we safe when we are loved by God? Near the end of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul explained what we have called the, the golden chain of salvation. And, and having explained the assurance of our salvation that once we have been chosen by God in eternal past, He will see us through into the fulfillment of that salvation in the eternal future. He then embarks on asking a series of questions in the following verses. He asks at the beginning of verse 31, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to, to such a great salvation? At the end of verse 31, he asks another question. If, if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, how will he not also freely give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Those are important questions. But they're important questions on two different levels. The first five questions all deal with our judicial standing before God. So God is the judge, and, and having been saved by Him, what is our legal standing before Him? Do we, do we have a right to stand before Him? And on, on what basis will we stand before Him? And are we legally secure? The last question is different from all those other questions. It is a relational question. It addresses the question of, of our position in fellowship with Him. 
And it asks the question in so many words, does God care about us? Does Christ love us? And is His love deep enough, deep enough to hold us and keep us in Himself no matter what? Are we safe in Christ? And Paul's conclusion in verses 35 to 39 could not be more clear. When the believer is in Christ and loved by Christ, nothing can remove him from that love. When, when a believer is saved by Jesus Christ, he, he has God's love showered on him. And once he has been a recipient of God's love, he is eternally secure in that love. He is safe. God will keep him in that love. As we address this one last question in verses 35 to 39, I want to also ask five questions that are implied in these verses. Five questions that, that are derived from these verses and from the one question that the Apostle Paul asks. The first of them is given in verse 35. What circumstances can separate us from Christ's love? What are the What are the circumstances of life that can separate us from Christ's love? Notice what he says, verse 35. He asks, actually, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As, as we consider Paul's question, I want you to notice several different things that, about the nature of this question. When, when the Apostle Paul uses the pronoun who at the beginning of the verse, he's, he's thinking particularly about who are the people that will create these circumstances that, that might move us away from Christ's love or, or move us out of the security of Christ's love. But he's not just talking about people. He's talking about the circumstances themselves. He's, he's talking about the people and the situations that might separate us from Christ's love. When he asks the question further, who will separate us from the love of Christ... He's talking not about our love for Christ. He's not saying who will separate us from our love for Christ. He's asking the question, who will separate us from Christ's love for us? He he has love for us who are in Him. Who will separate us from that love? And as we think about the love of God and the love of Christ, we do well to remember that there, there are two different kinds of love that, that God has for people. The first kind of love is a, a general kind of love that He sheds on and pours out on all of mankind. So He says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but has eternal life. God loved the world and, and because He loved everyone in the world, He made made provision of His Son so that all who might believe would be saved through that Son. So God, God loves all men. But, but just as you might say, well, I love all people, and, and maybe you're a Sunday school teacher and you have you know, four and five and six and seven-year-old children in your class, you say, oh, I love my children. But if you have children or you have grandchildren, you love your children and grandchildren differently than you love the children in Sunday school. And so God has a unique relationship with His children by which He showers them with a particular kind of love, a special kind of love 
for those who are adopted into his family. It's the kind of love that Paul talks about in chapter 6 of Romans. We saw this a few months ago. Uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us who are believers. He demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to see the particular kind of love that that God has for believers in Jesus Christ, it is that He chose them to be His when they were not His, when they hated Him, and when they were enemies of them. And, And even when they were enemies, Christ at that time died for them, gave His life up for them. This is this is the love that the Father has for the Son, that the Father and the Son have for their people, for the love that Christ has for us. One commentator says this about the love of God that Paul has in mind here. He says, It is in the giving of His Son for us that God's love is preeminently shown. And God's love for us is not simply an emotion, but it is His gracious action on our behalf. This is, this is God's love for us, particularly who belong to Him. And then Paul asks the question, who will separate us from that love? And the word, the word separate denotes a division, a, a, a barrier, a separation. It's, 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 um, it's used of creating a space between two different and even opposed things. We see this word, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, when it says about Jesus Christ, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That word separated is the same word that we have here in verse 35. So as Christ is is holy and magnificent and lifted up and exalted. There is, there is a separation between him and sin such that he could never sin in himself. He could be the sin bearer, but he could not be a sinner. So great is this barrier. That word is also used, uh, separation of divorce in a marriage and, and, and a cleaving of the marriage, an ending and a separation of the marriage. And Paul is asking the question here, who will separate us? Who will divide us? Who will create this massive chasm between us and the love of Christ? And and when he asks the question, he's anticipating a negative answer. No one, no one can separate us. But but just in case we have questions about it, he, he raises some particular circumstances that that we might be tempted to think, if this is my circumstance, then Christ no longer loves me. So he asked the question about tribulation. Will, will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? The word tribulation refers to a, a broad kind of trial or pressure. It's, it's hardship from external circumstances. It's, it's hardship that comes from, from living in the world and all the difficulties and, and burdens that come by living in the world. It's, it's uh, cold cancer and car accidents, I like to say. It's all, it's all the stuff that just comes from living in this fallen world. 
But living in this fallen world not only sometimes brings tribulation, sometimes it also brings distress. Distress is the internal response to the external problem. So tribulation, that's our external problems. Distress is, is the internal anguish that we experience with the external pressure. It's, it's feeling hemmed in. And, and you've got no place to go because everything is just pushing in against you in an ever-increasing and tightening spot, constricting you. And, and you have no options. Will distress lead you away from the love of Christ? What about persecution? Not only are there external and internal pressures in the world, but there are also people who seek to do us harm, people who will harass us and oppress us and persecute us. Well, Will those things remove us from Christ's love? Or, or are those things indicative of the fact that Christ no longer loves us? What about famine and nakedness? Here he's really kind of talking about the same kinds of things. Nakedness is not... He's not so much talking about the nakedness of not wearing clothes as much as he is nakedness not having the funds and the resources in order to be able to buy the, the, the clothes that are necessary for you to wear. So, so you don't have food and you don't have covering. The, the most basic things in life have been removed from you. And, and if you can't even sustain yourself physically, if you, if you don't even have an ability to, to get the most basic needs of your life, isn't it indicative that God no longer loves you, God no longer cares for you? Will, will famine and nakedness be indicative of, of God's separation from you? What about perils? These are dangers. Life in this world is sometimes a dangerous place to live and to be. And, and the Apostle Paul knew that. In fact, this, this word that he uses here, uh, peril or danger, is used nine times in the New Testament. It's used once in this verse, and then it is used eight times in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. In one verse, he uses the same word uh, eight times. I've been, he says, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Danger everywhere he looks, peril everywhere he looks. And, and is the dangerous part of life indicative that Christ no longer loves us? What about sword? This refers to violent death and judgment that comes against us. And as I've noted previously, these are not simply theoretical ideas to Paul. These are the things that he has personally experienced in his life. He has experienced every one of these in his life except for the sword, and he will experience the sword. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Are they servants of Christ? I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, at night and a day I've spent in the deep. Then all the dangers that we already read about in verse 26, verse 27, I've been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? These are realities of life. It's not just a list. 
This is the world in which we live. And the question is, if, if this is my life, is it indicative of the fact that Christ no longer loves me? And Paul would have us to answer that question, no. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say, these are the things that God has designed to move us to Him. We're at verse 35. Just slide your eyes up to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things except the trials and burdens and sufferings of life to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. Okay, I got one chuckle. Is that right? What does it say? Answer me. What does it say? That's not very convincing. What does it say? All things. All things, brothers. That means your tribulation, your distress, your persecution, your famine, your nakedness, your peril, your sword is not a sign of the lack of God's love for you. But if you are in Christ, it is a sign of His love for you so that, verse 29, you will be conformed to the image of His Son and so that He, the Son, would be the firstborn to you. So that, so that the Son would be preeminent to you. So that you would delight in the Son more than anything else. He wants all this stuff to move you to Him and Him alone. Our problem is that there is always a temptation to play the He loves me, He loves me not game with God based on our circumstances. And we believe that if our circumstances are easy and pleasant, then, then God loves us. And if our, if our circumstances are difficult and hard, that must mean that God no longer loves me. He loves me, He loves me not. I get a pay, an extra paycheck on, or an extra amount, a, a bonus on my paycheck. He loves me. I, 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 get, I get a water leak at my house. He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. A friend... He loves you. If God has set His love on you, it is no fickle love that you have received. It is an eternal and infinite and unwavering love. Difficult circumstances do not preclude His love for you. Instead, difficult circumstances are an opportunity for you to be drawn to Him and in fact for Him to hold you in His love. In the words of William Cooper's hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, are so very helpful. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. When, when we evaluate God's love for us based on our circumstance, we are, to use Cooper's word, judging the Lord by feeble sense. <laughs> it's sensory perception and it is all wrong. Instead, we should be evaluating our circumstances from the light of God's word and rest in the security we have in His love. What circumstances can separate us from Christ's love? None. Second question, verse 36. Will martyrdom separate us from Christ's love? If you have your finger or a pencil or a piece of paper back in Psalm 44, now's the time to turn back to there. In Psalm 36, the apostle quotes 
from that psalm. He, he quotes in the despairing part of that psalm, verse 22, For your sake, he says, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But, but prior to that, he reminds the Lord of, of their fellowship with him, of their continuation with him. He says, verse 17, All of this, all of the dishonor, all of the persecution, all of the suffering, all of the condemnation, all of the work of the enemy against him, all of this, verse 17, he says, has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. You can almost hear him pounding the table. We've not forgotten. It's not fair. We've not dealt falsely with your covenant. We've not. We've not disobeyed. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. We've been faithful to you. Verse 19. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and have covered us with a shadow of death. We're suffering. And we're headed for slaughter. And we haven't left you. In fact, he acknowledges... That, there, that, that there's a right kind of discipline that comes from God. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God, or if we had extended our gods to, our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secret of our, secrets of our heart. So if, if we had gone astray, He would know and it would be right. But it's not right, seemingly. We're suffering here. And verse Verse 22 is just so clear with the imagery. For your sake, we're being killed all day long, throughout the day, all day. We're, we're dying here. And in fact, we are like sheep that are headed into the slaughterhouse. We're, we're in the slaughterhouse, but, but we're the recipients of that be, which is being slaughtered. We're not the ones doing the slaughter. We, we, we are slaughtering. We, we are hurting here. And Paul is using this psalm as a reminder that there is suffering in this world. There is persecution for the believer. And when that happens, it is not a lack of God's love for you. He will talk other in other places and the rest of the Scriptures likewise affirm there is a reality to suffering and there is a reality to persecution for the believer. Second Timothy chapter 3 he says in verse 12, uh, verse 11 rather, he talks to, to Timothy about all of the things in which Timothy has seen him and emulated him, things including persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. It wasn't just that Paul suffered once. It was repeated suffering in multiple different locations. And what persecutions I endured. In other words, they, they were not trifling things. They were significant things. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Then verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you can, you can be assured you will be persecuted. Now, that's, that's not a popular message in the contemporary church, but that is, that is the message of the Scriptures. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will endure hurt. But it also is a reminder that out of them all, the Lord will rescue you. In fact, Paul, as he anticipates his martyrdom in chapter 4, he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might be here 
might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. So I have been rescued from all the persecutions to date. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. The Lord will not allow Himself to be defeated by the persecutor. And how will He accomplish that? Middle of verse 18, And He will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. Sometimes, friends, the manifestation of God's love is persecution that takes us home. Martyrdom is a real thing, but it does not separate us from the love of Christ. How do we know? How do we know that martyrdom doesn't separate us from the love of Christ? Keep your finger in Romans 8. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Philip is meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. He asks, he asks the Ethiopian what he is reading And the text tells us, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation and judgment he was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. He's reading Isaiah 53. And it says in verse 34, Please tell me, the eunuch says to Philip, whom, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering of Jesus. And how do we know, how do we know that martyrdom does not preclude the love of, the love of God for those who are martyred? Because... Christ is the lamb who was led to slaughter. And if a lamb going to slaughter means that God doesn't love, then the Father didn't love the Son. And friends, the Father loved the Son. It was, it was in His love that He sent the Son to earth so that the Son could redeem us, so that He could give a love gift of a redeemed people to the Son to forever praise Him. Oh, He has loved the Son even in the Son's death, even in the Son's martyrdom. He loves the Son. My friends, martyrdom does not remove Christ's love from us. We can expect persecution, but persecution is no indicator of the absence of God's love. In fact, it may be an indicator of our love for Christ for a dying world to see the power of the gospel in us. What circumstances can remove us or separate us from Christ's love? None. Will martyrdom separate us from Christ's love? Absolutely not. Verse 37, what is our position in Christ? As we've noted, it, it is tempting to believe that when we are suffering and when we are in persecution that, that God no longer loves us. But, but in the midst of this thinking, Paul interjects a single word in verse 37 that, that stops our thinking. Verse 37, but... And, and with that single word, 
Paul is denoting that he is aware of a secret that, that his readers aren't, or he's aware of a truth of which they are not thinking. There's another reality in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials, that they need to be thinking about. Suffering does feel like defeat. It is a reality, but there's something behind the curtain of the suffering that they need to know about. This is, I read that verse and I, I immediately thought about the old cartoons about Popeye. Remember when Popeye's just getting thrashed. And he is laid out on the ground. And he's just this puddle. And, 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 and uh, Brutus is thinking, I win, I win, I win. But you know his secret. He's got a can of spinach hidden somewhere. That always seemed to me to be terribly uncomfortable. But anyway, however he did that thing with the spinach. And you knew that as soon as the spinach came out, it was all over for Brutus, Right? Or, or you think about some of your favorite um, superhero, other superhero cartoons, you know, Clark Kent. And you think, oh, there's Clark Kent. He's getting thrashed. He's just this unassuming guy wearing the nerdy glasses, but, but he knows something you don't. There's a cape underneath. And, and it's about to come out. And he's going to win. That, that's what Paul does here. But in all these things, which things... Verse 35, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. All of those things, all of the trials, all the, the burdens of life. Then he's reminding us that in these things we, we are beat up, we are bloodied, we do waver, we do weep, we do agonize. Persecutors do attack and Satan does attack. And death comes in untimely ways and we are shunned and rejected and we live alone. But in all these things, he says... We are not defeated. In fact, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just win. We, we win big time. In fact, the word that he uses here, the verb that he uses here, appears in verb form only in this verse. And Paul takes the word nikao, which means to win. And we get our noun, Nike. Victory from that word. He takes that word victory or to win and he attaches a preposition to it that means over or above or beyond. So there is something in which we have beyond victory or above victory or massive victory or glorious victory or lopsided victory. It's, it's a route. It is, it is a victory beyond victory. Friends, these things do not defeat us. Even martyrdom does not defeat us when we are living in Him. Notice verse 37. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. When did did Christ love us? He loved us, we've already seen this, when He died for us. Paul is thinking back to a very particular action and a particular event. Him who loved us. There was a particular time in which he demonstrated his love for us. When was that? That was when he was on the cross for us. 
And Paul is not saying we win in ourselves, but he is saying we win because of Christ. We win because of what Christ has done. It is not that we conquer by avoiding trouble. We conquer because he has secured us by his death and resurrection. We overcome by persevering with Christ in suffering, and we prove that we are his and that we are loved with him because we persevere with him. We are overcomers in him. Oh, my friend, if you are in Christ, then Satan is defeated and sin is defeated and death is defeated and you are victorious. The victory is not our victory. The victory is Christ's victory, which he imputes to us and accounts to us. And thus we are safe with him. Says one commentator, it is not through any courage or endurance or determination of our own, but through Christ. And not even by our hold on Him, but by His hold on us, that we are more than conquerors. Oh, my friend, if you are in Christ, be sure of this. Your position is not just victor, but great victor, glorious victor, grand victor, overcoming victor. You are safe in Him and His love. There's another question to ask. Verse 38 and verse 39. What powers can separate us from Christ's love? Verse 35, He asks the question, what circumstances or people might separate us from Christ's love? Here, He's emphasizing what powers, what authorities might be able to separate us from Christ's love. And and He organizes them around multiple pairs. So there are four pairs of contrasts or four pairs of comparison and then two single aspects as well. Notice what he says. I am convinced that neither death nor life. So death is the thing that, that typically separates it from, separates us from, from those whom we love. Death is the great separator. Great, death is the, is the great intrusion into our life. And, and will death separate us from, from the love of God? Will, will life separate us from the love of God? Will, will things that are in our lives, will the circumstances of our lives or, or even the good things of our lives so distract us that we are moved away from the love of God? He says, no, neither death nor life can do that. Nor angels, nor principalities. Angels here is a a general word for, for the angelic realm. Principalities refers not to the mass of the angels, but some angels who have hierarchical position and authority within the angelic realm. And so the Apostle Paul says, neither angels nor their authorities can do that. Likely here he's talking about ungodly angels, because... And we understand that no heavenly angel is going to try and remove us from God's love or, or um, put God in a position where He's going to give us circumstances that indicate that He no longer loves us. And so it's an ungodly angel. And the Apostle Paul says they're incapable of, of removing us. Angelic realm, angelic forces are incapable, as strong as they are, from removing us from the love of God nor things present, nor things to come. There, there's no present circumstance in life for which we are fearful. There's no future circumstance of life for which we are anxious that will overwhelm God's love. His love wasn't overcome in the past. His love isn't being overcome in the present. And His love will not be overcome by any circumstance in the future either. There's, there's no present temptation. There's no future sin that will uh, overwhelm God's love for the believer. 
In fact, what is to come for the believer is glorious. Remember verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We not only don't need to be anxious about the future, we have a glorious future that's awaiting us. Verse 39, there's another one last set of comparisons he makes. He says, neither height nor depth. Things that are, things that are high and things that are low. Those are, those came to be astrological terms and they referred to things that were higher than the horizon or above the horizon and things that are below the horizon. And in some cases, it actually came to denote heaven and hell. And the apostle is saying, there is, there is no force in the universe that is able to move us away from the love of Christ. Verse 38 again, one of the single things he mentions, not, no, no power. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, he's referring here again to tra- angelic beings. And, and he's saying there is no transcendent power, even angelic power, that can transcend God's infinite power. And in case, he hasn't, he, in case he's overlooked something, he says, verse 39, nor any other created thing. This is the all-encompassing term. There is, he says, nothing in creation that can separate the believer from God's love. You are safe. And notice why he says you are safe. He says, because no power will be able to separate us from the love of God. No, No power has an ability or a power to separate us from God's love. And, and the word here, separate is the same one as in verse 35. There is nothing that can divorce us from God once we are in Christ. Every power, every power that has any power is all subservient to God's power and God's love. It's all underneath His authority, which is the point that Paul makes at the end of the verse. Because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing can overcome Christ and nothing can overcome Christ's love because He is the Lord. He is sovereign. He is king. He is authoritative. Nothing can overwhelm Him. I want you to notice one more thing from that verse. Notice the pronouns in verse 39. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a particular kind of love. This is the love that is only for believers in Jesus Christ. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not your position. This is not your place. This is not what you have. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, what you need this morning more than anything is to trust in Christ as your Savior. You must repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, embrace Jesus Christ as someone worth following and someone worth believing who has paid for the atonement of your sin, who's washed you clean. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I compel you and I urge you, trust Him today for your salvation. You must believe in Him. So those are four questions that rise out of the one question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? There's one more question I want to ask based on these verses. It is this, of what are you convinced? Notice verse 38. Paul says, I am convinced It means that he is persuaded. It means that he is compelled. It means, in fact, 
that he has been compelled by the love of Christ previously. He came to understand security in Christ previously, and he continues in that even today. He still is convinced of this truth. It has always been that he is convinced of this truth. No circumstance of his life has changed his opinion of God's love for him. In fact, notice verse 35, he asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38 and verse 39, he makes a declaration, I am convinced. There's no question in his mind. And he doesn't want us to have a question either about the love of Christ for us. Yet there's another aspect of Paul being convinced that's implied throughout this passage. Paul is also convinced that it is worth staying with God. It is worth persevering in our faith. Not not only are we convinced and is Paul convinced that God doesn't lose his love for us, but the implication is that there is no circumstance, no trial, no pressure, no persecution that should compel us to go away from God. So, so verse 35, he says, what will separate us from the love of God? What, what will indicate that Christ no longer loves us? Tribulation, distress, persecution, etc. But he also means by that, will I, when I am in tribulation, walk away from God's love for me? When I am in distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, will I walk away from God's love for me? Will I say, I'm done? And Paul is convinced that even if it means the sword, he will not leave God's love for him. So here's the question. Paul is convinced about God's love and the value of persevering with Christ. Are you also convinced of the value of Christ and His love and the priority of remaining with Him? Or are you the kind of person that will only remain with Christ when it appears that He loves you? That when things are good, oh yeah, I love Jesus. When things are bad, I'm all out. Count me out, I'm not interested. My friends, there are dreadful things in life. There are hard things in life. There are powerfully difficult things in life. And the believer in Jesus Christ is the one who perseveres with Christ even in the midst of difficulty because we know that we are loved by Him and we love Him in response. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the children in Narnia asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about the lion Aslan. You may recognize this dialogue. Speaking about Aslan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, friend, if you are looking for safety in this world such that you will have no trial, difficulty, burden, pressure, then God is not safe. But if you are looking 
for the security of being kept in Christ in His hands of love in the midst of every trial and in the midst of every persecution and every burden and every weight and every difficulty. Oh, friend, you are infinitely and eternally safe in Him. Father, we need this truth. For we waver way too much. We cling too much to the things that we want and the things we desire. And we cling too, too weakly to the security of what we have in Christ. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Might that be our hope? our confidence, and our security this morning and this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.